Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles and this week we are back to our version of normal with Robin and Josie both in the studio with a special guest and that is how most uh, episodes will be going forward now, Robin and Josie. As normal, we've still got a few uh, live episodes and bits and pieces uh, to come out as well but lots of episodes with Robin and Josie coming up, the first one being this week with Ariane Shireen as our guest. A reminder to support the show on Patreon if you can, patreon.com slash bookshambles. You'll get extended versions of episodes. You'll get other rewards are available there as well. A dollar a month or a dollar an episode, it's up to you. As little or as much as you would like to contribute is all greatly appreciated by everyone at the Cosmic Shambles Network. And if you're coming along to one of the four now sold out uh, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People shows at King's Place, December 14, 15, 19 and 20, uh, we are, as we always do, uh, collecting for the Trussell Trust food banks at those shows. We'll have an area set up that you can bring along a donation, uh, household items and food and that sort of stuff. If you go to Cosmic Shambles, slash nine lessons. There is a list on there from uh, the food bank of what their most urgently needed items are. So take a look at that and bring along something if you can. Obviously, we know that it is absurd that food banks need to exist in uh, London or Britain in, in 2018, but that is the unfortunate reality that we live in so if you can bring something along uh we and the trussell trust would greatly appreciate that so we look forward to seeing you at the shows if you're coming along uh robin will be signing copies of i'm a joke and so are you out now at that show as well they'll be available for sale in the foyer but enough of that, on to this week's episode. And, oh, actually, I should say, uh, just before we do start this week, uh, a little word of warning that this episode does contain uh, some chat about uh, abuse. So uh, do keep that in mind uh, before you continue with the episode, which starts now. And over there, ready to tempt you with an apple? Uh, oh, the, uh, is he calling me uh, a I am. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, I only said book club there because we were just talking about book club with a guest, but a different kind of book club. Um, the guest today is someone who I first met. I first met you in the Welcome Cafe, actually. I remember we we, we met there to talk yeah. about the uh, the Atheist Bus campaign, uh, which was uh, Ariane's uh, idea and uh, was, was a, a fascinating and... F- what year was that, Ariane? That was start of 2009. The campaign ran 800 buses around the UK and then in 13 countries around the world. 
That was a pretty yeah one. That it's it's an amazing. There's there's lots of different ways of ideas becoming real, but somehow an idea becoming real on the side of a number thirty seven. There's something rather <laughs> uh, magnificent about that. Um, since then, uh, Ariane has uh, been working as uh, uh, look at, listen to that water there in the background. That well, is, I thought I wasn't on mic, so I thought. Of course, you're on mic. Oh, your mic doesn't go on and off just. <laughs> Oh, Sorry, no, I, was... I need to go. I'm 49. <laughs> Where it is. The, um, but... It's prostate. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, don't, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't had that check yet, so it means I haven't got a tedious routine about it in my stand-up set. I think that's is why that I'm putting it thing? off. I'm thinking, what if I, you know, if I have the channel, well, actually, there were a couple of things that are right take on, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, that's no attack, by the way, on people who have lots of witty and interesting I'm going to write some routine. colposcopy gear. Oh, that would be good. That, that, I'd like that. A good bit of colposcopy gear. Um, so, Ariane Shereen uh, now has uh, a book out. Uh, the book is called Talk Yourself Better, and it is a look at many different forms of, uh, I suppose, of the talking therapy, isn't it? The, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and was launched at the, uh, the Freud Museum. And so we'll we'll get straight into it because I've I've been reading the book and it's fascinating and I know that everyone in this room has had some experience of some form of of, of counselling or, or or therapy. Before we get to that, we we did an event at QEDCon, the the Merseyside Skeptics mm-hmm. uh, event about two months ago, and you at the beginning of that event gave some of the background as to what has led to you facing up to having to face how you can get a balance of your life how you are able to uh regain some control of your life can you give a little bit of the background of if it's okay the the what your childhood relationships sure so my dad was abusive and it's taken me a long time to say my dad was abusive because my mum always pretended that everything was normal but my dad would fly into a rage whatever i did i mean it could be losing something dropping something spilling orange juice down my top or not eating my dinner uh, or fighting with my brother. And he would pull my trousers and knickers down and he would hit me hard between 50 and 100 times. And while that was happening, he was saying, you know, you're revolting, you're disgusting, you make me sick. And then I start crying and he'd say, well, why are you crying? I should be crying having a daughter like you. And then my mum after that happened, would re- would appear in the doorway and she'd say, oh, your father was upset because you spilt your orange juice, for instance. And so I internalised it and thought, well, this is my fault. And if only I could be perfect, then this would never happen. This is because I'm not good enough. And even to this day, I'm 38 years old and I still sometimes lapse into this reverie where I am starting my life from the very beginning and everything I do is perfect and my dad doesn't hurt me and my mum loves me. So I went to school and I wasn't properly socialised. And because I didn't know how to behave because I hadn't really had it modelled for me at home. I would do shocking things. I would act out. I would say silly things. And so I didn't have any friends. Um, And my brother was... Uh, my younger brother, three and a half years younger, he was my mum's favourite. Um, he was everything I wasn't. He was very studious, very quiet, very neat, uh, very obedient. And I was loud and chaotic and messy and creative. And so my mum would try and criticise me into being the kind of kid that she wanted. You know, don't do that, don't say that. Um, and so it was relentlessly kind of difficult. And I, 
I think it would have been easier if my dad had just been a monster, but he was so, he could be so affectionate, he could be so loving and so kind. And I remember him swinging me by my heels um, upside down and screaming and squealing with laughter and telling him to put me down. And, you know, so I have these sweet memories as well as difficult memories. And I think that's what made it easier to blame myself because I could see the goodness in him. Um, And he died two years ago yesterday. So, and I still miss him. (laughs) That's, um, I mean, it's such a, that it, it, if only that was that was the you know the first time of hearing that story. I've, I'm I'm always amazed at the number of people who have that story of the sense of a parent who the it's a, I mean it's like to, to use a corny old horror movie that film The Stepfather from the 80s where there's this guy who keeps becoming a stepfather and then he gets angry because the family is not perfect. Mm-hmm. And I wondered you know now do, do you have any thought what is it that makes some parents seem... I mean, we all all parents will at some point lose their temper with their child and all that kind of thing, right? Sure. That's a separate thing. That's very different to what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but that thing, that looking at that child and saying, you're not what I have dreamt, you are not what I have imagined. And it's, it seems to be... You know, there's quite a few biographies and autobiographies I've read where that, that is the starting point of the relationship. Do you have any kind of further understanding of, of why why all of that aggression? Well, my dad was born in the 1930s in the Depression in America, and he was brought up by abusive parents. And because he didn't have therapy, because people didn't really have therapy back in the day, um, at least not where he was from, and he just internalised it. Um, He had poor working class parents who, um, I'm not entirely clear on the detail because he wouldn't talk about it, but he was estranged from them and he said his father was a bad man. And so because he internalized it. He had nowhere for that pain and rage and anger to go. And it just came out with his family. And I find it hard still, I think, you know, that he was a coward, because it wasn't like he was hitting people in the street. It wasn't like it was coming out in other areas of his life. It's not like he punched the dean of his university where he taught. It was literally the weakest and most vulnerable people he knew who would keep the secret. Mm. So, yeah. That's the I, I read. We've talked about it before, but Erwin James, who uh, wrote the book uh, Redeemable, which mm-hmm. is Erwin um, uh, ended up after a, a very difficult childhood. Where again, the sim, the similar thing where uh, the dad out to the outside world. What a great guy! And then behind the closed doors, and and for Erwin, it led to him where the, the lack of his dehumanization was such that. He in I think it's late teens or early twenties. He actually he murdered someone, and he's he's in fact two people. And the book is a, is a, a very interesting look at what can happen when someone has all of the humanity and all of the compassion removed from their life. Um, when when did you start to realise there might be something that could be done, or indeed that this was not? Because I think a very common thing is for people to feel that everyone... Well, isn't this kind of what everyone... As you yeah. said, this is every, isn't this everyone's experience in some way? Isn't or this the way... you know that your experience was bad, but you're like, well, it was bad, but what am I supposed to do? Mm. I've got to keep going. You know, you sort of... Like I, I've, like, I was thinking about how before I went into therapy, I used to 
dream of like I just used to fantasize about like but if things could be different they'd be this that the other if these people could behave differently if this relationship was different you know mm-hmm. and, and like what therapy like got me to do was to go okay but it isn't and we can still work with that you know mm-hmm. it, it, this is the lay of the land and you can admit to it and you can see what you can salvage from that and stuff like that and like I think um yeah like even Either you go, oh, no, it can't be that bad. Or you go, like, it is really bad, but I'm just going to be... I just have to take that on board and, like, stuff like that. I, I was thinking about how um, when I got to therapy, I it's like the way that women, when they've had trauma, they, like, internalise it so that they punish themselves. Yeah. And some, like, more often men will sort of punish something else just because of the way they're socialised. And, like, yeah. yeah, like, when I got to therapy, I was, like, literally beating myself up because I didn't know what to do. And now I look back at that and I'm like, God, I can't... I, I, like, I, that seems so alien to me compared to now. And, yeah, so I was just, like, sharing my experience. <laughs> no, that's great. So, class, did you, as you were researching this, find forms of therapy that you thought oh, wow, I wish I'd encountered that earlier or or find things that you were like, well, this is not for me. Like, <laughs> do you, Did you find yourself having to sort of like, like suppress maybe your own opinions about certain things or like be like, oh, maybe I should have been... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, not really, to be honest. I mean, there's stuff that I've tried that didn't work. For instance, hypnoanalysis. That didn't work for me, but it helped Charlie Brooker quit smoking. Wow. So, and he's probably put on a good 10 years onto his life because of it. Um, so different things work for different people. Yeah, of course. Um, I've tried... Can I ask, sorry, yeah. well, just on that, what, so what is the process when you're talking about some of the things that you've done with, in, not, not merely abuse from uh, your father, but also in, in the book you talk about abusive relationships yeah. that you've, you've, you've had with men. Yeah. So in terms of the, the hypnoanalysis, how does that work for dealing with something like that? What, what, what is the scenario? So I was experiencing severe claustrophobia after being suffocated while I was pregnant by the man I was pregnant by. And it's kind of odd. Like, she made me sort of... She said, oh, you're standing at the top of some stairs and you're going, you're walking down the stairs. And as I as I count down, you're walking down the stairs and you find yourself in this beautiful, this special place and you go into a sort of trance. And now you can talk about all the bad things that happened. And she made me talk about all the bad things. And then she's like, and now you can um, release these things. And so I don't know if that was... Uh, her personal style or if this is what always happens in hypnoanalysis Um, but I emerged from the stairs and I came up and I was still claustrophobic and I hadn't released anything (laughs) (laughs) I had somebody because I was trying to lose weight which now I'm like oh god so much of that is so fucked around diet culture and all this nonsense but she she tried to get me to go to an instance which had caused me to be overweight and she kept saying and what is it and I'd be like I don't know she'd be like no no there's a time what is it and I'd be like I don't know why are you asking me this and it's because I guess because it's like this is just how my body is or it's too complicated or there's loads of things but I think sometimes with hypnotherapy there might be one trigger that some people do to have a certain behavior or or for life but for other people you're like 
mate, this is too complicated. <laughs> I'm lying down. What are you doing? So no, I absolutely. can't get the thing to shut up. That's the thing that I've found interesting at a very early stage, and I don't know whether I'll continue or not. But because of perpetual observation of what's going on, yeah. when they ask you questions, I'm still monitoring my... You know, that, that bit, that kind of hypervigilance thing yeah. makes it really difficult when they... Uh, have you ever tried to do, you know, meditation where you go, that's a thought, that's a feeling, that's a thought? I might give it a go. Do you know what? I, I, I descend into busyness, as yes, you know. That's, it, yeah. and, I, and I think that's a... Because that's what I find fascinating about the Freudian side of things. I've talked about this on stage. Some days you walk in, you think you haven't got anything. And there was a story which um, I was talking about the other day where I uh, I had to send an email because cause I'm on tour so much. So a couple of days, it was quite hard to make those uh, mm-hmm. sessions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I got in, I did that normal... No talking, no talking. Uh, oh, Don't God, say, how I mean, are you? That, that, that book, which I really like, but I can't mention that I like the book. And... Like, and uh, um, and then I'm lying down and she goes, oh, you sent me an email yesterday and I sat up and, and I went, oh yeah, it's just because I've got a couple of, I think I'm in North Allerton, there's another one where, mm-hmm. and she went, this is interesting, why are you sitting up for this bit? And I went, oh, <laughs> this isn't just pragmatically talking about timetabling. And, and all of those kind of things, or, you know, late paying a bill oh. is... All of that stuff. I was always late for my appointments and I was like, I'm always late for everything. She was like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I reason. think that's what, yeah. That's... <laughs> I, you and I should do a podcast doing a mindfulness retreat and see how it oh, goes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they've set fire to the monastery, those two bloody idiots. We got bored. <laughs> we wanted to make an occasion. <laughs> Sorry. All over, all over the place. In this. It's, I, do you know what's exciting about this, I, this book, I think, is I know so many people... It's funny because about 10 years ago, all of my female friends who felt they needed it started seeking help. Mm-hmm. And now, 10 years later, all of my male friends are starting oh. to seek help. And I think it's, you know, it must be because men are told they're not allowed to feel yeah. their emotions. And yeah. it must be harder for men to sort of come to that realisation, definitely. Mm-hmm. But um, it's this is going to be so useful for people just to be able to get a good idea of what each of those things are and oh, be like, oh, you. this sounds like it works for me and this sounds like it works doesn't work for me. And, and even with it, it's like... Well, it's, it's given an idea for those people. It starts off where you basically kind of interview yourself to create the, uh, which is, is some some great gags in there, and then it, we hear the voice of one or two therapists, and then we hear the voice sometimes of one or two uh, people who've experienced that form of, uh, of of therapy, as well as other um, sometimes slightly broader essays from people. But this is this bit interesting. Friends of mine who've become therapists finding out how fraught it is to actually like there was one friend of mine and that the when she was going through therapy to become a therapist the therapist always turned it back on her and would go uh, oh uh you're not thinking about me at all today are you and all this stuff and she was like and i was chatting to uh i think it might be philippa perry who of course has been on this show in the past and and she went oh yeah there's lots of that and if you ever talk about it on stage and you suddenly find out you hadn't realized some of the people who come and see your show are therapists of course they are what a lot of notes to take if they come and see a show by you or me josie and uh um and and they'll go quite concerned. How have you found your therapist? Have you because <laughs> they know that it, you may well find yourself going, oh well, I had a terrible experience, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to do that again. And then you talk to someone who really knows what they're they're doing, or as much as you can, and and they'll go, yeah, that's just a very bad. That's a weird therapy. individual. So, that's a bad circumstance. You talk a little bit about that in 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 the in the book, but would you give it? What advice would you give to people if they're um, you know, seeking out, thinking, how do you make sure, not merely the right type, but to know that there are people out there who 
will not be helpful. And will, I, mean, I mean, you actually mentioned a couple of your own experiences yeah. in the book. Yeah, so after my boyfriend turned violent while I was pregnant, I had an abortion. And then I went to the Tavistock Clinic, which is where I went when I was a teenager. And the therapist I had was just so awful. I explained about the violence, I explained about the abortion and how it agonised about what to do because I was previously pro-life and obviously now I'm very pro-choice. And she said, oh... So you thought you'd come here for some sympathy, did you? And it was just so, so harsh and so cutting. And I was so vulnerable at the time that I just burst into tears and started crying and crying. But I think now I would report to her. And you can report therapists. Um, I mean, first, you there you would have reported it to the Tavistock Clinic. But therapists are always registered um, on the BACP or UKCP registers. So you can file a complaint with them. Um, but to be honest, I was just so floored by her lack of empathy and compassion because you'd think that that was like the first thing you learn as a therapist, how to be compassionate. But there are certain schools of therapy where it seems to be, if not acceptable, then it seems to happen more often than not that people, you know, that you have a kind of confrontational stance as a therapist. And I think perhaps that's what she was trying to do, but obviously it didn't work. That's, yeah, that seems... Well, you talk about another... Uh, I, I think it was another therapist, but where, where after you'd done the Atheist Bus campaign, where, again, the blame was kind of just thrown directly at you, where, well, you did... Oh, I can't remember the word was. It's something in, inflammatory, or, you, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, well, it was very inflammatory what you did. Yeah, yeah. And that, again, doesn't seem helpful or what you're, whatever you're because you that's one of the things that the first thing you've said there as well on the other person is both of those things are very easy to come to of your own self-loathing accord you don't need to pay money and go and sit on a, <laughs> do you know what I mean There's, yeah what you're hoping for is to have something surely un, unearthed or or visualized not merely whatever is probably rumbling through your mind quite near the top the nature of therapy is, in part, you do want it to help you feel better. Li- Absolutely. You know, that's what therapy is. It? It's so that you can live your life better and that you aren't finding it as hard. The idea that you chop and go, well, like, you know, and then for them to be like, oh, you want a bit of sympathy? You'd be like, well, yeah, a bit. I'm I can see person. why you're here. You're a bad person. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> oh, imagine the worst therapist in the world. Well, you're right, actually. Well, you shouldn't be. Oh, God. <laughs> see, when I interviewed Josh Cohen for my book, and Josh is a really lovely uh, person. He, he wrote the, I was mentioning to, to you before, he wrote the How to Read Freud book, and he's written a very interesting one about the private self, and I can't remember what his next one's called, but he's got one coming out. And one of the interesting things I found on the first time that I chatted to him was he said one of the things that he hopes comes out a lot of the time is where you realise you don't have to be as good. You don't have to. You may well be. Some of you, it's just not that great. And there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Do you know what I mean? It's not as opposed to, you know, going, going that for so many people, it's it's that failure to um, attain whatever dizzying heights you expect. of, of And you go, no, it's fine. You know what? People make bad decisions. People do bad things and stuff happens and you just got to and, and don't get yourself, you know, that that you will not always be perfect. Yeah. And I think that is. 
I think as women as well, uh, not that you're a woman, Robin. <laughs> we, we are, we are, number you. <laughs> not just here, but on the globe. Do you know how much I get paid for doing this podcast, though? <laughs> three times as much as you do. <laughs> oh, shit, I've kept that quiet for three years. Robin, you do do three times as many yeah. interviews as me. And, you know, you talk faster than me. Yeah. <laughs> that must be got, sorry. That's, That's okay. No, I was just going to say as women, I was thinking that we struggle with not being perfect because we have such heavy expectations placed on us by society and the media and we help you know we have to be to be married and we have to have kids and we have to have this perfect family and perfectly clean house and high flying careers and you know that is the image that is held up in front of us and then we have to have these instagram ready bodies and uh, are you beach body ready and you know we're kind of bombarded with these messages so i think to say oh no i'm not perfect and that's okay that is desirable and that's that would be wonderful but i think it is possibly harder mm. um unfortunately and it's something that i struggle with and it's something that i hope i will be able to do at some stage because i'm Sorry. No, go on. No, you go. <laughs> no, I was going to say I'm definitely like very, very far from perfect. But instead of it being a, an acceptance thing, it's it's more of a well, I should be perfect, and I'm going to carry on striving until I am. I'll just beat myself up more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm obviously but I think not that's Josh's point. You know, which is that once that's what we have to deal with. Is uh, the fact his book, by the way, is called Not Working: Why We Have to Stop. Uh, it's out in January, and he will be on the show at some point. But um, yeah, that uh, I suppose that is, you know, the the realization of. Because I think in in this world at the moment, I've talked to a lot of therapists recently about the fact that they've noticed things like depression and and other forms of kind of melancholia are uh, the the age is going down and down and down. And I don't want to end up being pseudoscientific, but there is a worry where you look at some of the patterns in published papers of the fact that being connected to so many people via social media and all that is, it, it, it seems counter instinctual to think that that won't have some effect when we are a creature that is so scared of 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 shame of embarrassing ourselves of you know that that to now have all those other people tapped in as well mm. you can and also i think that that's going to you know without wanting to stir up a hornet's nest i i think it's going to impact women more i think it's going to impact anyone who is a minority more i think it's going to impact people uh, because just, you know, from my own experiences of online culture, like even today I was looking at one of the actors from the Derry Girls made a really sweet tweet where she said, we filmed a scene today where 11 of the 12 actors were women. I'm so happy about this. And then she started showing the abuse she'd got for that. And it was like, oh, yeah, like women in particular, but also, in the, you know, LGBT people, BME people, like people are brutalised by this interconnectedness and I feel like in 10-15 years people will have enough of a perspective to be able to go oh look a generation of women in public space was but maybe it's always been there but it's been different but yeah like even more I, I think when I don't know, I'm more so for me, Robbie. But I don't mean it like that. I no, just but mean... I think there is a, that. That's an intro because I, I think that's one of the problems we've got, which is for for people in 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 my position, uh, once you get a, a a a small dent or some form of abuse, yeah. you therefore feel that you've got a kind of uh, equality of experience. Well, you've and had I, some and experience, and you're empathetic, though. But no, but but what I mean is that that thing of going uh, rather. Oh, now I have to go again. You just pour water in front of me. <laughs> 
<laughs> so sorry. But the uh, oh, no, but you girls are playing, you women are playing mind games on me, so, mind games. No, but that wasn't um, me saying, Robin, you, no, that no, was no, me no, going, no, I, I bet you when we think about it as well, you, we'll see that, you know, not only is it getting younger, but there'll be certain people who are affected in different no, ways. No, but I don't, I don't take umbrage with it at all. I, th- I think there's that, I, I think it's an important thing to realise that even if you've had some form of a, it doesn't mean that you therefore go, oh, well, we all, we all get the same, because we don't, because you do get. The stuff that I've said on on social media, which if you'd said it, you would have had a lot more bullshit than I would have had, mm. for no other reason than the fact that you're a woman. And I, and I have to, if I don't accept that, then I'm an idiot. Because if I don't accept having a position of privilege, I used to talk about this on stage, saying that you know I had a poem that I wrote about checking your privilege, oh, yeah, and yeah. and and I would say it doesn't mean that I haven't been beaten up in my life, but I had to open my mouth first. I had to say something. I didn't merely have to walk out of the door. Mm-hmm. And I think you know there are. I, I I don't think that I like it. You know, you, a lot of people say, you know, when there was someone saying a, a while ago, we might have talked about this already, the, about the fact that if you're sitting, if a bunch of men are sitting together and one of them is being particularly misogynistic or whatever, you know, hey, guys, don't just sit it out. Maybe challenge them or whatever. And immediately I, I retweeted whoever had said this thing. And I was getting these people going, oh, so it's, it's all our fault now. When It's not saying it's your fault. It's just saying be aware. You don't have to feel. And I think that's the problem is people, they, they leap straight to a position of feeling that they have to feel guilty. And then that makes them angry. And then they start. And you go, no, you just have to be aware. It's the first thing you say in your book about checking your privilege. And you make a funny joke about it. Um, but I think it is something that you are aware of, and that is fantastic. Um, and there's just so many men that I've met who are totally unaware of it. And you're absolutely right about um, the impact on uh, women and BMA, BAME people, of which I am one, but I can't say the acronym. It's even better to be a member of the BMAs. Well, that's, uh... <laughs> um, no, I was basically... Um, it will affect younger people and it will affect um, women and it will affect minorities. But I think what we have to um, have faith in and what gives me cause for optimism is that young people are being brought up in such a progressive way and it's really encouraging. Like my daughter totally schooled me the other day because um, I... We unfortunately were in a coffee shop and we saw a man hit a woman in the face. And I said to her, darling, you know that it is never okay for a man to hit a woman. And she said, oh, what, you're saying it's okay for a woman to hit a man? (laughs) And I said, well, no, but, you know, men are bigger and they are stronger generally. And she went... Your gender stereotyping, mummy, and that is wrong. <laughs> Listen, I'm trying to tell you a point about domestic violence. So actually... <laughs> she's she's hilarious, and then um, she um, she had a toy, and it was pink, but it had the name of a boy. And um, she said, oh, I know, I think it's transgender. And she was saying what sort of pronoun she was going to use uh, that that the toy would like. And I just thought that's so lovely and it's, it's so caring. encouraging. And yeah. I feel like w- what I want to do as well, because we haven't even yet asked you about what books you love. And it would be really interesting to say, like, did you like... Did you enjoy reading around the subject of therapy, or when you were reading this, did you find uh, writing this? Did you find that you like were trying to read things that were nothing like it? Like, how did how did that 
your reading inform your writing of it? I have to make a terrible confession, which is that I have this fear as a writer of plagiarising. It's one of my biggest, biggest, biggest fears. And so when I am writing, I try not to read, which sounds awful. That's like the stand-up. You don't want to see someone else's joke and be like, shit. No, I don't watch a bunch of Netflix specials and then decide that that's the time to write Maiden with Fringe Show. You know what I mean? I I think you're quite right. I I totally understand that. Thank you. Um, generally, I try and ro- I try and read stuff that's gonna lift me up and stuff that I've seen friends recommend. So the last two books I read were "This Is Gonna Hurt" by Adam Kay, which was so funny but also so heartbreaking at the end. Um, it's just fantastic and it really deserves all the plaudits that it's getting. Um, and then also I read um, "Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine." That's the one that I've heard everyone talking about. I thought oh. if I swigged from the bottle, it wouldn't make any noise. <laughs> no, I've heard everyone talking about it and saying how much they loved it. Yes, I've heard. Uh, yeah, a friend of mine read it, and and just I could hear laughing the whole time. Uh, uh, just saying there's some bits which are just so brilliantly absurd, and yeah. It's absolutely hilarious, and she just she builds the character so well, and you know that there's something strange going on, but it, it's there's a massive twist at the end, and you're like, oh my goodness, I totally didn't see that coming at all. Um, and she's such a unique character, Elena, and you've never really encountered anybody like her in fiction, which I think is why the book has been such a success um, by an unknown author, and it's. You know, so what is it? Because exciting. I've not read it. So what? What is it about the character? Without giving away too much, then which which? So she's a very bizarre character, and she has problems relating to people um, because she's socially incredibly awkward, which is is sketched with empathy, but it also gives rise to lots of hilarious situations. And um, she's basically ostracised by the whole of society. And she starts the book very miserable. But by the end of the book, she has she, ha- she has a relationship with her abusive mother. And by the end of the book, I don't want to give too much away, but that is resolved. And also, uh, she enters a relationship for the first time in her life with a man. And... Uh, she ends it happy so that's yeah I mean it's it's wonderful I, I mean the relationship at the end is a little bit ambiguous and people have praised it for that because it's not it's not entirely happy ending it's more of a realistic happy ending if you see what I mean rather than a Hollywood type ending yeah. um, but I loved it and I genuinely sort of read it in one sitting um, the other author that I come back to again and again is Helen Dunmore um, who died sadly um I think last year and she is the most wonderful uh, literary fiction author and her novels are just so beautiful and so dreamy and every word is so carefully chosen it must take her it must have taken her years and years um and i i was lucky enough to meet her at the start of 2016 and interview her and i got an amazing surprise when i went into buy the paperback of her book to find my quotes on the inside cover oh, and that's so nice. <laughs> it was so nice it wasn't attributed to me but it was it was just so lovely to feel that in some way I'd been a part of her book um and this author that I'd loved since I was 15 years old so what would you recommend of hers that people start out my favorite one is burning bright it's just such a a sad and bleak and beautiful tale about a girl who is effectively abandoned by her family and she falls into a a very 
well, you could say it was an abusive relationship, but it was with a much older man and you just fear for her safety the whole book through and various people want to use her for their own ends and she forges an unlikely friendship with an elderly lady and this kind of bond deepens. It's just it's just an absolutely wonderful book. I would definitely say, yeah, buy it. And I, I've bought it for so many people. That's the best. That's when you know you love something, when you're like, oh, I bought 10 copies of this book <laughs> and given it to people for birthdays and Christmases. Yeah, I bought another copy of The Man Who Mistook His Wife for the Hat the other day. That's one of my, I know it's a very cliche <laughs> one, but I just love reading uh, Oliver Sacks so much. I like and, um, just, and I found a nice hardback copy. I thought that means nice. I can now get rid of all of the paperback copies to friends as well who might all not have got round to it. That's just such classic Robin, not the paperback. Paperback copy, all of the paperback. Well, also I do that thing where if something's got a different cover, there are certain books that I love. I know I'm going to be getting rid of books, but there's certain ones, and I just beautiful uh, cover art. um, Come on, what are you supposed to do? You've got to keep reading. Yeah, that. that, But Neil Postman's uh, "Amusing Ourselves to Death" has had so many interesting covers, uh, and we'll talk about that another time. What's that book about? It's basically about it's it's it was mid '80s, and he was looking at the decline uh it's kind of influenced in some ways by marsh McLuhan as well and others but the decline in the ability to concentrate the increase in society as a whole that entertainment drove everything that everything was you know new it and and it's in some ways debating about the fact that are we moving towards uh orwellian future or a huxleyan future or a mix of both it's children of men that's what we've got children no. of men oh and we should all be very pleased with that <laughs> i've still never read the book but that's a great film it, oh. oh my gosh i love that film and i haven't read the book but i've read around how the book was adapted which i know is like going i've not mm. read it but i've done the quick <laughs> cliff notes but it's i i think the way it's been adapted is probably more apt to the present. Like, I think oh, yeah. we're lucky for the adaptation, is what I it's mean to say. Basically, the film of Brexit. Yes, <laughs> it truly. You know, I, I got a bit obsessed with that film about five years ago because I was like, oh my God, it's, 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 it's real. This is what it's like. This is, and uh, what scares me is that, like, it's even more so. Yeah. Like, it only serves to feel more familiar, and that is so sad and so. Yeah, uh, wrong. Absolutely. Except that we will have kids. There will be lots of kids, oh, but yeah. we won't be able to feed them. Oh God! <laughs> well, I wanted to ask actually, what about when you were a teenager? And you yeah. talk a little bit about your teenage life, and and uh, but were did books play a part then? Was there was there any yeah. point? So so yeah, the first time I read a book was that Helen Dunmore uh, book on the cover of Cosmopolitan because I used to read trashy you know women's magazines, girls magazines. So like just seventeen as I'm sure. R.I.P. Greatest you're... magazine ever. <laughs> and um, yeah, more magazine and all these magazines that aren't. More magazine aren't, was the racy one. It was position of the fortnight yes! of the week. Yeah, it, <laughs> so it, it literally have a cartoon of people doing it. Yeah, very. Miss magazine. Did you ever do Miss? M- Ms. Ms. and Sugar were slightly, um, you're a bit younger than me, young, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Sugar was a bit young for me. <laughs> Do you know, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, oh, they are. Sad. It's very sad, isn't it? It's... They were very sweet and they would try really hard, I think, to be empowering and feminist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the problem that I had with most 
most written literature was that it didn't seem to pertain to my life. Um, And so I started writing as a way of sort of getting it all out. Um, I think if I had had books that were a bit more representative of what I'd been going through, although, you know, it's difficult to write books about, a, you know, a mixed race girl with a, an abusive family. <laughs> there are not that many of them out there. Um, but that book, I was explaining, um, Burning Bright, that I was telling you about the plot. So even though that wasn't about somebody in the same situation, it was about a 16-year-old who was having a very hard life so I think I connected with it and it was the first time I realised properly that writing could be beautiful I mean I'd done um, you know English lit at school and stuff but it's never the same when you're forced to read a book I don't think yeah I don't know about you guys um no Mansfield Park I'll never forgive I felt like that was foisted on me I was like how do it something has to happen and I know Middlemarch is classic and all that but because of the time and because of the deadline I could never find true joy no it's like especially what you don't need when you're a teenager is mannered things about adults you need things about 15 year olds with a sword you know do you know do you think there's been like a real boom in young adult stuff since I sp- uh, probably since you and I Ariam were have left that demographic I think they found the way to market them I think that's because oh. I used to work in a children's bookshop and that was always whether it was things like teen tracks or which was one of the series that was lion I think and and they would or the way that Essie Hinton's novels were marketed oh, yeah. and things like that um and of course, as you know from reading Just Seventeen, once you were seventeen, you would have stopped reading Just Seventeen because I presume yes. you read it when you were fifty. Yeah. So I think that because I mean, Yana Teller, who we had on this a while, well, in fact, yes. you, it was when you were away, but uh, a but while back. But but Yana Teller's book, Nothing, which is officially meant to be a teenage fiction, but I see no reason why. So mm. I think something has changed in terms of. Getting just, people what they need. Better. Yeah, of saying you 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 will enjoy this book, but we're not going to say this book is. Uh, are you fourteen? This is like fourteen year old <laughs> being fourteen. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of. I was chatting with somebody who's working at the BBC at the moment. And they were talking about uh, what was it, front row or something. Wanted to make trying to get younger people uh, listening. So uh, they uh, they did a little piece on uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And I thought, but that's not actually young people's things, is it? That's also watched by lots of middle aged people, and, and and lots of the personalities on it are people who were big in the 80s or whatever yeah. so it's an I think often that's what happens is there's a, uh, the people deciding what I had it once when I had a meeting with BBC Three or something about and they went oh you see our demographic won't get any of these ideas and I said yeah but I just played the Reading Festival yesterday and I was on and there was a bunch of pissed up 15 and 16 year olds and I had a lovely time doing a 50 minute set on these kind of things but no they, they like kind of you know sex and pissing and shit and, you know what I mean <laughs> a, there, there is a, I think you can end up with and I think that's it's developed now, the way. I, I think maybe people have realised and publishers have realised that in the past, teenagers were underestimated. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, my seven-year-old has just seen the latest Fantastic Beast film and she loved it and that's a 12A. Um, and it doesn't seem to upset her or disturb her, you know, any of the series. And I, I lived 
down the road from a library. There was a library at the bottom of my road when I was growing up, um, which was fantastic. But whenever I tried to get anything out that was vaguely adult in theme, they would be like, oh, no, no, this isn't for you. You know, oh. you're not allowed. So, But um, I remember like going around, the, I remember um, checking out the erotic fiction and the, the big sex scene was always at the staples. So I'd like open the book to the staples. But there was sort of everything at my library. I don't know if you remember um, Lynn Reed Banks. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairy Rebel. Yeah, yeah. Elsie Drums at Limery Banks. Yes, it? yes. Yeah. Although that was probably for um, for older. Um, but yeah, that was that was such a sad book. But I remember um, that book. She decided not to have an abortion, and I remember thinking back to that and thinking that that maybe was what helped me form my sort of pro-life views um, that I had. But, um, yeah, I mean, books can be extremely um, influential on on your worldview. Um, but, yeah, I loved her and I loved her, her children's books. And um, But then, like, that was quite good sort of fiction. Yeah. But then I, we'd also have all these trashy books like Sweet Valley High. And... Oh, <laughs> oh God, we, that, when I worked in the bookshop, yeah, because this was nearly 30 years ago, Sweet Valley High, Judy Bloom, of course, we talked about before. Love Point Judy Horror. Bloom. Yeah, Goosebumps now. <laughs> that goosebumps. was an interesting thing about certificates on films, because I get annoyed sometimes because my, my, my son's 10, and I'm like, why is this even, you know, sometimes you go, why have they gone and put, they did, that swearing wasn't even needed. It would have been fine being a, but the. Uh... Well, as a woman who's written the c word into her film unconsciously in multiple <laughs> times, thus making the film a clear eighteen when it's basically a PG, um, I can say people do not appreciate how important it is not to fill your film with swearing. <laughs> um, what have you read recently that you've really loved? Yeah, I really loved Adam Kay's book, and it is. It's so funny. It's the funniest. I would say it's the funniest thing I've ever read, which is... That's a joy. (laughs) And it's rare. Like, it is so rare. The thing I think that I've read that made me laugh so much, the most, was um, The Time Waster Letters by um, Robin Cooper. Oh, yes. Yeah, I read that. That is the times when I've been out reading it in public and laughing so loud (laughs) and so hard, uncontrollably. But it's. I can think of maybe four or five books in my life that have been able to do that and it's so cool it's so rare it is it is and um if you're after delightful and surprising then elephant is definitely in that category and it's such a sort of fresh new voice like you just haven't encountered anybody like this character before but that doesn't mean that you can't relate to her yeah so you might not be able to relate to her completely but you kind of relate to the awkwardness of the situations of the social situations um yeah i think that i'm going to be listening to your podcast a lot more and getting loads of book recommendations and then starting to read a lot more (laughs) i just remembered when i was a kid i used to go to the library i had the exact opposite experience which was they thought that any comic book was for kids (laughs) so that when I was about eight, nine, ten, I would like read the Tank Girl books because they were all. Well, in... yeah, because you're of the generation. I, I be, be, being you know forty nine, my generation was still predominantly uh, if Spider Man was having the normal you know teenage issues and stuff, and it was really in the eighties where that that revolution began. Yeah, and they had so I was getting the very first to... details, but by that point I was already a teen, so it was fine. Whereas you, yeah, Tank Girl with her strange kangaroo man. And, yeah, um, and so much sex and in the film. <laughs> I never saw the film. It's a really, it's just, it looks too, do you know what? It looks too clean, if you know what I mean. Mm. The, what, the great thing about Tank Girl, I think, it's also dirty. was part of yeah, the general yeah. grubbing, yeah, you know, the smudges of ink. Yes, yes. 
Um, we've run out of time. Talk Yourself Better is available now. And uh, um, I think we've been too excited by how open and um, compassionate you've been. So we've been like, oh, my God, and this and this. I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, so, yes, Talk Yourself Better is out now. And uh, there's many different people in, in the book talking about their uh, their personal experience, what they found helpful, what they haven't found. Um, do you think now, having sat down and done this, is there something in you which would like to, when we were talking before about the importance of stories and moulding and shaping things, mm-hmm. would, you, would you now like to perhaps write um, fiction where taking some of those things and thinking, how do I turn this into a, a, a separate story? I'm working on two novels, one young adult novel and uh, one adult novel, but not adult. <laughs> one uh, novel for grown-ups. Um, and, yeah, it's really quite... Um, freeing it feels very liberating to be able to put my thoughts down on paper and not worry about fact checking them <laughs> and um yeah it's it's wonderful i love writing fiction and i hope that one day i'll get published as a fiction author as well as a non-fiction author so fingers crossed <laughs> Brilliant. Josie Long's uh, movie. Go and find that. That will be on in uh, probably the local art house cinema, won't it? Because uh, we're hoping. Proper art. Um, uh, Ariane Shreen's book uh, out now. And uh, mine is too. There we are. Thanks for listening. Yes. Bye. And they make very good companion pieces. They tr- Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles, if you would like to join them. We'll be back with another new episode next week. A new Science Shambles podcast is on the way very soon as well with Dr. Helen Chersky and Dr. Sammy Buzzard. Uh, Do check that out and subscribe to the Science Shambles podcast if you haven't already. You'll find that at cosmicshambles.com slash science shambles. That's Robin having lots of scientific chats with all sorts of different people. We've had uh, John Butterworth and Marcus Chown and Ginny Smith and Jenny Rones on those. Enjoy your week. Hope to see you at Nine Lessons. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.